Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Well, Trump has finally been indicted for willfully mishandling classified documents. The details are fairly amazing. Once again, we see the evidence that the man has never been playing 4D chess. He just so recklessly and pointlessly violates norms and compromises the integrity of everyone around him. And he's been so immunized from political consequences by having bent the Republican Party into a personality cult that it's no longer surprising that he expects every bad situation to turn to his advantage. And perhaps this one will, too. We'll just have to wait and see. I would definitely be happier if he were being prosecuted for something related to January 6th. That is, for something where there really is no comparison to make to any other political figure, alleging a double standard. It seems clear that such comparisons in this case are specious, because while they mishandled documents, Clinton and Biden and Pence did not behave the way Trump has behaved here. But the political optics are very easily distorted and are actively being distorted now. Anyway, I'm going to keep my powder dry on Trump. I was hoping never to think about the man again, but it seems it will be unavoidable as the 2024 presidential campaign gets rolling. But I will pick my moments carefully because the man has been an almost miraculous opportunity cost for our entire species. I mean, more time has been wasted on Trump than on any other human being in the last century. I mean, this is not Hitler or Stalin or Einstein, right? This is a person so totally without consequence or substance. This is a person whose ideas and life example and even his bad intentions are so measly. It really is a perverse miracle that he has taken up this much of everyone's time. It's like we just spent the better part of a decade obsessing about and watching our society tear itself apart over vanilla ice or carrot top or peewee Herman. And I don't mean to denigrate those guys especially, but I'm sure each of them would be astounded if they bent the arc of human history in this way on the basis of their cultural products. How did we get here? How is this the person who has taken up all of our bandwidth? It really has been an astonishing theft of our collective attention. Something seems to have gone very wrong with our culture. What we have in place of sober thought is just a ripping sound that started somewhere around the OJ trial. At least that's when I first heard it. And with the birth of the internet and social media, it has grown deafening. We seem to have collectively produced an approach to politics and journalism and activism and citizenship, a whole life philosophy that really could be summed up in Johnny Cochran's immortal lie. If the glove don't fit, you must acquit, right? I mean, that's the level. That's the empty slogan that led millions of people to celebrate the release of a man who everyone knew was a murderer. That's the level of cynicism and moral confusion and grievance entrepreneurship that seems to have spread everywhere now, right, left, and center. 
And we now have a culture that simply cannot produce a coherent vision of how to survive in this century, much less thrive in it, because we've lost the ability to impartially talk about facts. And most of the people who are lucky enough not to have to really worry about this, at least not yet, those who are doing well enough to avert their eyes and just focus on their own lives, these people are busy watching ASMR videos and taking ice baths. It seems pretty clear that the mainstream media can't figure out how to solve this, but the independent media can't either. Podcasts and newsletters are becoming like multi-level marketing for conspiracists. I've called this a new religion of contrarianism, but calling it a religion is too grand. It's a cargo cult that is dazzled by each new meme that washes up on Twitter. Epstein didn't kill himself. George Soros is ruining everything. UFOs have finally landed. Big tech censorship is the most important problem on Earth. Behind every one of these things, you get a glimpse of how the story ends, with another wave of lunatics storming the U.S. Capitol, only to take selfies and smear shit on the walls. I think if Jesus came back to Earth tomorrow to raise the dead, half of our society would expect him to say something about mRNA vaccines or Jewish control of the media. Can someone figure out how to reboot this hard drive? Anyway, today's podcast has nothing to do with any of these issues. Today I'm speaking with Andy Clark. Andy is a professor of cognitive philosophy at the University of Sussex, and he's the author of several books, most recently The Experience Machine, How Our Minds Predict and Shape Reality. And we talk about the predictive brain, as well as embodied cognition and what he calls the extended mind. We discuss the structure of perception, novelty, precision, pain, psychedelics, emotion, hacking our predictions, hypnosis, meditation, artificial intelligence, consciousness, and other topics. And now I bring you Andy Clark. I am here with Andy Clark. Andy, thanks for joining me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So um, you have written a fascinating book titled The Experience Machine, How Our Minds Predict and Shape Reality. And uh, long before that, you were, uh, I believe, the co-author with David Chalmers of the Extended Mind Hypothesis, which uh, rattled some (laughs) minds, extended or otherwise, in philosophy uh, back in the day. Uh, So I want to talk about all this. I guess let's start with your book, which mostly focuses on the uh, predictive brain hypothesis, which is a topic that has come up in at least one recent podcast. But let's see if we can explain this fairly counterintuitive thesis. But actually, before we do, maybe can you just summarize your intellectual background that I just gave to landmarks on it, but what, what have you tended to focus on, and, and how, how do you describe your interest in philosophy and science at the moment? Okay, yeah. So, you know, I've been working in cognitive science and kind of uh, philosophy of mind for a long time now. Originally, I guess I was most interested in questions about the role of the body and the construction of our mental life, and I'm still very interested in that. I soon became interested in connectionism and robotics because that all seemed to go together, you know, connectionism, that old word for artificial neural networks. Mm -hmm. 
And at some point during that sort of journey, the extended mind story came on the scene, which I saw really as just a kind of footnote to a lot of work that was going on in embodied cognition anyway. It was just a kind of observation that embodied agents can lean on their tools and technologies in such a strong way as to make them uh, worth counting as single systems at times. And really, I spent a long, long time thinking about all that stuff, but people kept asking me, so what is it that brains do in all of this? And, you know, although I'd followed the neuroscience, I'd never bothered to sort of um, really look for a systematic account of what the brain's role in these complicated brain-body-world nexuses was. And then when predictive processing came along, something I'd kind of been interested in actually since the mid-90s when I was looking at just a fragment of that work, that just seemed to be a very, very good place to start to weave it all together because it turns out, or at least this is what I believe, that predictive brains are the perfect internal platform for embodied extended minds. Mm -hmm. So it was nice to get all of those things coming together. But that's kind of how it went for me, sort of interested in empirically informed philosophy of mind, running that through artificial neural networks, embodied cognition, robotics, uh, extended mind. And here we are today, predictive processing. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, a lot of that has relevance for recent developments, you know, cultural developments with respect to artificial intelligence. I think since you published your book, AI has just exploded into relevance for almost uh, everyone. So uh, I think we'll land there and just uh, get your take on, on the implications of, of these increasingly powerful tools. But before we do, let, let's talk about the brain and the mind and this notion that much of what the brain is doing perceptually as a matter of motor control and uh, emotional regulation and just cognition generally is a matter of its predicting reality on some level and then reducing prediction error. Let's just take it from the, the ground up, however you want to start. What is this predictive brain hypothesis? Yeah, I mean, I think the I think the best way into it is on the perception side. It's going to be important very rapidly that it's not just a story about perception, but somehow that seems to me to be the the, the easiest way to get the general picture. So if Mm. I was to, for example, show you a hollow face mask that was lit from behind, so you're viewing the concave side of the mask, it will actually look to you as if the nose is facing outwards. That's called the hollow mask illusion. It's uh, pretty popular. You can see it on the web. What seems to be going on there is that our brain has a very strong history with faces, and it's come to predict unconsciously very strongly that noses are going to stick out. So in that particular case, you've got perfectly good sensory information coming in, specifying concavity. But your visual experience is as of an ordinary sort of convex, outward-facing, nosed face, and that's what constructs your experience. And I think that's just a sort of a, a very small version of what brains are doing all the time. So, you know, that's a case where the stimulus is a bit weird. But even in the ordinary case of me looking around the room and seeing a, a Coke can and a, a, and a coffee mug in front of me, that is being constructed by my brain having very good predictions about what those sensory stimulations are likely to be like. 
and using those to do an awful lot of work. It's cleaning up the signal, it's discarding some bits, it's amplifying others. And it's that process of kind of cleaning up and making sense that downward flow in predictions, predictions moving from deep in the brain towards the sensory peripheries, seem to be doing all the time. And that's the general idea. These predictions are issued by a generative model, just like in the, in, in the AI systems that you were just talking about, chat GPT and the rest. Obviously, mm. the content of this generative model is rather different to the content of their ones, and that's something we might, um, we might come back to in the end. But um, that's the sort of basic picture is we've, over time, built up a, a model of how the sensory stimulations ought to be if we're where we think we are doing what we think we're doing. And the brain uses those predictions to structure the inputs, and then we're driven by the errors in that attempt at structuring. So sensory information gets swapped for prediction error at rather an early stage of processing so that everything that you see, hear, touch, and feel is kind of framed by these attempts at prediction. So what is happening in the case where we perceive something that is truly novel, right? An object that you have never seen before, and you have never seen anything quite like it, suddenly is placed in front of you next to the Coke can. What is novelty on this theory? Yeah, I mean, I I think... The right thing to say there is is going to be very, very counterintuitive at first, which is that I don't think that we could even perceive absolute genuine novelty. But the good thing is that we're never presented with absolute genuine novelty, even if an object came from Mars or somewhere like that and it landed beside the Coke can. There's enough common patterns there in the sort of low-level sensory information for me to construct some kind of grip on its sort of rough shape and its color. At the same time, if you put me in a brand new kind of environment, the closest I can think of to this is, is when I first went diving. And, you know, you remember that experience of finding it very, very hard to kind of see anything. And yet over time, you, you're able to see an awful lot better. And I think that what's going on there is that we have to train what in that case is a very, very bad prediction machine in particular with perception action loops. So I think if you're going to get to grips with something that is pretty novel, then you're going to have to slowly deal with it over time, and you're going to have to deal with it in a way that has perception action loops right at the heart. I think it would be quite difficult to get on top of these things with sort of just passive information, although, of course, some kinds of system can do that if they have the right training. So what am I saying here about about genuine novelty? I I think that the cases you're thinking of just aren't genuinely novel. You know, if you blindfold me, take me out somewhere I don't know, I don't know what country I'm in, I open my eyes, I've still got an awful lot of good predictions that get very, very rapidly mm. updated by a little bit of prediction error that might say something like, oh, I don't know, this is, this is a very outdoor, countryside environment you're in, or this is a very industrial, urban landscape that you're in. And so those early prediction errors, whatever I started prediction, predicting, the early ones can then sort of frame more and more refined predictions. So a quick sort of very rapid cycle of predictions and error exchanges settles on, on the right thing. It's also provable that you can start a prediction machine with random assignments And if you just give it time, as it were, give it enough training, then it will learn a model that can make the right sorts of predictions. So 
you basically got two choices. You either retrieve a better prediction now because you've got one, or else you do a lot of slow and tortuous learning. What is the actual claim here with respect to the error term? Yeah, I mean, the, so I don't think that we experience prediction errors. That's a, it's slightly contentious. Some people think that, uh, that perhaps we do in some way. I think that what we experience is the result of getting rid of prediction errors. So, you know, your, your brain has to make a prediction. There will be prediction errors, but they're not experienced. They're the things that let the brain recruit a better prediction. So, yeah, if I open my eyes and I think I'm in my bedroom and I'm actually somewhere else entirely, then I don't experience the errors, although I might experience a moment or two of confusion a moment or two of uncertainty. I think so in that way, you know, it's not like the error's not there in phenomenology, but, the, but it's not really structuring my experience. All structured experience is the best current prediction. I think that's, that's the right thing to say. So then what's the relationship of attention and precision to this picture? So precision is a huge weight in, uh, a huge player in this, in this whole economy. It's kind of implementing attention. The idea is that precision weightings implement attention. But the, it's basically just the thought that if you're making predictions and you have sensory information coming in, then there's a question. How much do I trust the prediction? How much do I trust the sensory information? And that's what that weighting, uh, that weighting variable is doing. It's just it's able to adjust the amount of processing that is driven by the sensory input versus the predictions. So if I'm fairly confident of my predictions, as my brain was in the case of the hollow mask illusion, for example, it's very confident of those predictions. And then I end up with a, actually a false visual experience as a result. So attention in this case, increased attention to the face here is a matter of giving a higher precision weighting to the sensory input so as to overcome the illusion? Yeah, attention here can work either way. So, you know, you can be up in the value of the sensory information or you can be up in the value of the prediction according to which of the two your brain is unconsciously estimating to be the most reliable. Mm. And, you know, often it will also be a mixture of the two at different levels of processing, different areas of the brain. So, the other thing to remember about precision here is it's being estimated for every neural population in every area all the time. So it's not really just one balancing act. It's these, mm. you know, thousands of little balancing acts all the time. But yeah, the, that, that's the thought is that attention just is the process by which precision gets assigned. Okay, so I, I want to do our best to make this kind yeah. of intuitively graspable for people yeah. just in their direct experience. So, I, you know, I'm now looking at my computer. It's a very static scene. I've got uh, a Word doc open, and I've got my desktop, and nothing. This is, nothing's moving, nothing's changing, and I've been looking at it for some minutes. So my sensory experience is, is fairly stable. Obviously, I've been executing uh, lots of eye movements across this stable yeah. scene. So this, it's, it is changing, but it's not the ordinary circumstance of a, a rapidly changing world that I'm engaging with. So I'm looking at the static scene, and I find that I can pay attention. I can await various, and speaking just visually now, I can, I can wait 
the significance of various parts of my visual field uh, over others. Uh, and I can do that whether I'm actually redirecting my eyes and, and putting, you know, foveal focus on specific parts of it, or I, c- I can do it just purely as a matter of attention, which is to say that I can be focusing, I can have my foveal focus on just one word in my document, but I can also be attending to the periphery of my visual field, you know, as a matter of, of just directing my kind of the, the beam of my conscious perception. And in the midst of all of this, it's still possible for something new to appear, right? So that was not anticipated. So I can see like, you know, scintillas of light that are, you know, kind of happening more at the level of, uh, you know, my my eye, uh, you know, it's like a hardware error as opposed to something that's a genuine perception from the environment, you know, or it can be like a a floater, you know, in the liquid of my eye will come across my visual field. What is happening? Is it, can you just map this on to the notion of error and the notion of prediction? You know, when I'm moving from everything that's static, that I can continually, you know, visit and revisit and it's unchanging, and the changing term of, let's say, something floating across my visual field that wasn't there a second ago. Yeah. How is prediction? and error uh, accounting for this experience? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are lots of different things going on there, I think. One thing to say is that there are, there are, there are some kinds of stimulus, uh, stimulus that get assigned very high precision when yet they're detected at all. So fast-moving things from the peripheries tend to be assigned high precision as soon as they turn up. That's you know, that's uh, an evolutionarily useful thing. You notice something if it's kind of moving fast towards you. Can you just define that phrase, high precision? Uh, oh, sorry. This is just highly weighted. So in this case, it will be the mm-hmm. sensory information. Right. So that sensory information would then be highly enough weighted to probably break through from whatever else it is you're doing so that you see that thing move. You don't, you don't always, you know, if people set up the experiments in, in certain ways so that you're very busy trying to solve some other problem somewhere else on the screen, you might, you might miss it. But fast-moving things tend to attract precision, and that obviously will tend to, uh, to make them noticed in that way. The other thing that I think is worth saying about what attention does is it kind of reverses something that happens otherwise fairly automatically in predictive processing, which is that well-predicted things tend to be dampened. And so, you know, as you get the same information on and on, it sort of dampens. And that's uh, probably what's going on in troxlophadine and things like that, where a stimulus begins to kind of fade from view Mm. if uh, you don't move your eyes around really enough to give you a little bit of change there. So what attention seems to do is it reverses that that dampening effect so that you can keep something alive by, by attending, attending hard to it. And that's some work that uh, Koch, KOK, and, and some others have, have done. So I don't know, I, th- I feel like there's something else that you're after here about the way that precision weighting works. I mean, it's, it's basically just sort of applying a sort of estimation of the inverse variance of the, of the well, actually, the prediction error is the thing that is, is, is typically targeted there. So I, it's how much am I going to trust prediction errors of this kind as mm. they're emerging right now? And that's um, just something that the generative model has to learn to estimate in the same way that it's trying to estimate what's out there. 
So one of the things that I think is interesting about predictive processing architectures is that they're automatically metacognitive architectures as well. There's these two things going on, guess the world and guess how good your guessing is all the time. Mm -hmm. And how does this account for other aspects of experience like emotion and motor behavior? And I mean, maybe yeah. we want to do and take each of these at yeah. a turn. And I'm, I'm thinking especially things like pain. And I mean, there's, there's this wide literature on things like, you know, the placebo and nocebo effects and, yeah. you know, pain and functional illness being, in many cases, driven by one's expectations. Uh, you, ha you have a you know, fairly arresting example in the book of just how far this can go. Yeah. I mean, we can take those in any order you want, but I'm, I'm thinking about pain and emotion and, and uh, you yeah. know, motor movement. Yeah, I think um, where to start there? I think pain. Let's start with pain and then, and then move along to emotion and, uh, and, and movement. Yeah, I mean, you could think of pain in the same ballpark as emotion, but, mm. uh, but, but let's just start, start with simple pain. So, you know, the idea there is that we're predicting not just the external world, but the signals from our own body all the time. In fact, you might think that predicting the signals from your own body is evolutionarily the whole important thing about, about this kind of structure, is that you're, you're predicting how your body ought to be right now, and that helps to kind of, in a way that we'll describe in a minute, move your body around and adjust internal parameters and, you know, start sweating and things like that, or go and get a, something to drink or something to eat in ways that keep those, those variables within the bounds of viability. So we kind of, um, we use predictions to make sure that we don't have to stray right outside the bounds of viability before we know something's going wrong. That seems, you know, basic homeostasis and allostasis. That's, uh, I think the fundamental reason why we have predictive brains is to uh, enable those things to happen. So just as a concrete yeah. example, so thirst yeah. is not necessarily a reporter of a true departure from homeostasis. It's more of a prediction of a yeah. coming departure, and therefore you deal with the thirst before, in fact, yeah. it's physiologically real. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, Lisa Feldman Barrett describes this very nicely uh, in her, um, I think it's How Emotions Are Made book, where she says that uh, if you uh, feel thirsty and you take a drink of water, you'll, you, you immediately feel as if your thirst is quenched, but actually the water won't do you any good for about 20 minutes, something mm. like that. But that's fine because the feeling of having a quenched thirst reflects a prediction just as much as the thirst did in the first place. So you, right. you've got time to spare, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah. So it's fine to think that it's quenched now because as long as it's quenched in 20 minutes, you know, you're, in, you're in good shape. So the thought there is that, yeah, all of our bodily feelings are constructed around predictions, including pain. And for that reason, if you get very strong information suggesting that something very painful is happening to your body, then even if nothing is actually happening to your body, you feel intense pain. You know, I think the example you might be thinking of in the book is a construction worker that fell mm -hmm. from a, a height onto a nail and it appeared to pierce right through their foot. They were in intense agony. They were taken to hospital and given fentanyl. And then when they slowly removed the nail from, from the, the foot, well, it turned out it had just passed harmlessly between the toes. But 
Of course, the worker couldn't see that. They're wearing a big work boot. What they saw was strong visual evidence of a really, really nasty injury. And I have absolutely no doubt that the pain was perfectly real and intense, intense enough for the fentanyl. And that's sort of, you know, you might think that's a very dramatic case, but the moral of the story and the, and the moral of the discussion in the book anyway, is that actually all of our pains and all of our feelings are constructed in part from prediction and in part from sensory evidence. And that's as true for ordinary pain as it is for that particular sort of a rather dramatic illusion of pain. And then you've got all the complicated functional medical syndrome conditions in between, where in some cases there's no sufficient physical cause. But in many cases, there's a physical cause, but it's just not a sufficient explanation of the, the intensity or persistence of the pain or other disability. And there it just seems like there's a little bit of overweighted prediction machinery in play. And there's a lot of interest in new therapies that are trying to target the predictions rather than anything else. So I think pain is, you know, we all know this in a way. It's sort of if the dentist says expect a tickle, they're saying that for a reason. They're trying to frame those sensations that you're going to get in a way that really will dampen the, the experience of pain just a little bit. And there are controlled experiments showing that uh, expectations of intense pain will up the pain rating and expectations of less intense pain will down the pain rating even when what's being delivered is, you know, an, an intermediate stimulus all those mm. times. So I think pain's, pain's a good case, but it's just, a, it's just one that we all happen to know about. But all of our medical symptoms, all of our bodily experiences are, are built up in this way. I just want to re revisit the basic thesis again, because I, I, I know yeah. you clarified this at the outset, but um, I just want to make sure I have the true shape of it. So is the claim that we mostly consciously experience our predictions and are continually revising them in concert with attending to sensory inputs? Or is it that all we experience is our predictions and that the, the sensory input is really always unconsciously modifying our predictions? And that's, that is, it's, it, it, it's a, as Anil Seth called, a controlled hallucination, but it's Yes. The control component is always in the, happening in the dark. Yes, that's the way I see it. Mm. Of course, you know, it's, it's still early days for, for, for this sort of family of, of theories, and you could construct them in, in different ways so that you have some sort of somehow partial experience of the, the flow of the prediction errors. But that's not true to my visual experience normally, for example. If I just turn my head around and see the room that I'm in, there must be flurry upon flurry of prediction error being created and then being resolved because I know about the room, I know about the kind of objects in it, I have no trouble at all sort of upping the attention on that diary on my desk and seeing the details of the sunflower that seems to be um, on, the, on the front cover. I don't experience the errors at all. I just experience the, the most successful predictive model that has accommodated as much of the error as can be accommodated right now. So what's happening uh, under conditions where someone has taken a powerful psychedelic, say, like yeah. LSD or psilocybin? Yeah. You know, there's, 
there's a, I, I know that uh, you discussed this a little bit in the book, right. and, and yeah. there's Robin Carhart Harris's thesis around this. How do you think about this within the schema of prediction yeah. and, and error terms? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 basically in the book, I just uh, adopt the Carhart Harris model. I think it's the best one that we've currently got. But I think the first thing to say about the, the actions of psychedelics is it's very dose dependent. As I guess mm. we hope, I mean, as you will know, if you've taken any of them, it is very dose dependent, and that and the varying effects at different doses actually fall out quite nicely from the idea that the brain is a multi-level prediction machine, where the lower levels are specialising in stuff a lot closer to the sensory information itself. So you know, there's obvious things, you know, colour, shape, texture, those sorts of things. And then the higher levels are dealing in much more abstract things like, um, I don't know, what kind of thing is this? What can I do with it? In the case of um, many of the predictions that seem to be kind of targeted by the psychedelics, at the low levels, you get sort of visual disturbances. You might see creeping forms, different textures, strange colors. But then at the higher doses, you get the really interesting effects like... um, ego dissolution and uh, oneness with the universe and uh, the kind of um, the beneficial effects on people with chronic depression, for example. Mm. All of those things seem to require higher doses, not repeated doses necessarily. One dose can often do it. And that falls into place, according to Carhart Harris, I just report the work here, because the actual sort of shape of the psychedelic molecules causes them to bind to receptors that are higher up in the, in the processing stream, meaning that they're going to have more effect at high doses on the stuff that is more abstract, if you like. So think about things like, you know, what's your relationship to the world? What's your relationship to yourself? You know, how do you, how do you, how do you see yourself in the future? So I think it's, it does make a certain kind of sense, the idea that we've got this sort of cascade and that if you can sort of, I think the phrase that he uses is shaking the snow globe. So the idea there is that you can sort of disrupt the ordinary entrenched predictions at those high levels. And that can be really, really liberating because you get to experience the world in a new way. One that, um, you know, experience your, your being in the world in a new way, which I think can be incredibly powerful for people with sort of you know, end-of-life end anxiety or depression and so on. That's what the research seems to suggest. But in that case, where it seems like one is experiencing a great onrushing of novelty, what is one actually experiencing with respect to these different components of the theory, the, you know, the, the yeah. raw sensory data versus one's prediction about what is happening in the world and the accuracy, the yeah. prediction about the validity of one's own prediction. Yeah, I think the snow globe, that's where the snow globe image is quite useful, I think, because a good way to think about it is that what's going on when you get that sort of onrush of novelty, as you, as you nicely put it there, is really the relaxation of entre- entrenched predictions. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of getting rid, or temporarily at least, of the predictions that were gathering the sensory input into the accepted buckets. And since it's not being gathered into the accepted buckets, then new patterns can be detected, new shapes can form. It's not that they form without the benefit of predictions, 
It's just that the predictions that can now be recruited to deal with that information are not the ones that were being recruited before. Hmm. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's the best way to think about that and why the shaking up the snow globe thing is, is quite a useful little, uh, little picture. Hmm. Now, do you have personal experience with any of these drugs? Uh, yeah, some of them. Not, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've had some, well, I've had a fair bit of experience with MDMA, which is a borderline, mm-hmm. not a classic psychedelic. Yeah. I, I took peyote once a long time ago. That's, uh, that's in the, in the classic psychedelic, uh, psychedelic mode. And of course, magic yeah, mushrooms, yeah. um, magic mushrooms grew all around the campus when I was an undergraduate. So mm-hmm. yeah, we have plenty of those. Uh, so, yeah. so yeah, well, some of them at least. Well, that's a good go to philosophy. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah, well, so, well, MDMA, as you point out, is not a classic psychedelic, but it's, it leads nicely to a, any discussion of emotion and emotional pain and its uh, antithesis. Um, how do you think about emotion in this context? Yeah, so I think that emotion has a very strong component of bodily prediction in it. I mean, it's not just bodily prediction, but there's a sort of, there's an old picture of emotion that goes back to William James. I'm sure that you know it and yeah. you know many of your listeners know it. It's this idea that, that what an emotion is, is a sort of perception of the bodily changes that are associated with something or the ones that are going on right now, I should say. So, you know, the example, the famous example is you see a bear and um, you feel fear and you run from the bear, but the feeling of fear is actually your perception of the bodily states of kind of arousal and preparation for flight and um, whatever else, you know, galvanic skin response uh, that happens. That's just sort of motivated there by the idea that if you took all that away, you might judge that it would be a good idea to run away, but you wouldn't really be feeling anything. And I think that that, that, that story has a lot going for it, but it's a little bit blunt. I mean, uh, so my colleague at Sussex, Hugo Critchley, has done a lot of work on this. And uh, what they find is that from the James model, you, you might kind of expect there to be a one-to-one mapping between every emotion we can feel and the perception of some set of bodily changes. But there doesn't seem to be that. You know, it's, it's as if the bodily changes are a bit blunt. Um, you know, is there a characteristic signature for, I don't know, the anxiety that I was feeling before this podcast versus the anxiety that maybe I'm going to feel if I'm about to jump off a high diving board or, you know, it's just a bit blunt to reconstruct all of that. But if what you're doing is chucking that information into one big pot, along with what you know about the context, in order to try to predict what's going to be happening in your body and the world over the next, let's say, you know, few, few minutes, then you get something that is much more fine-grained. So, you know, the, the feeling of a, a fast-beating heart when you're working out at the gym versus when you're just sitting down and you're having a panic attack or you're worried that you're having a heart attack or, or something like that. You know, these are, these are very different feelings, and yet the bodily stuff you're picking up on might be very, very similar. Mm. Yeah, well, people will be familiar with the concept of reframing that is... Um really a, a kind of an opportunity afforded based on the way in which cognition and emotion interact there. So you, as you just point out, the same sensations can be arising in very different contexts and predictive of very different experiences. And, and that gives some leverage to us yeah. as far as kind of hacking our own 
yeah. you know, re- reactions by just consciously reframing or, in, or even just comparing to similar states of arousal and noticing that they're, you know, the, in the one case, you're scoring it as a highly negative experience and another, it's, it can be quite positive. I mean, say, you know, yeah. the example I always use is the stress one feels in the gym at the most intense part of one's workout just viewed purely as a matter of physiological stimulus is a, you know, it would be an extraordinarily negative and even terrifying state of the body if you didn't know the reasons for it. You know, if you woke up at three in the morning and you felt that way, you'd call an ambulance. But because you know what's going on and you know what precipitated it, it's actually a, it's a highly positive experience for most people, yeah. even yeah. if there's an unpleasantness to it. Yeah. So how do you think about the freedom this gives us yeah. to intervene in our standard predictive weightings that may be making us, frankly, miserable and yeah. improve our lives on the basis of just grabbing the, the levers of this machinery. Yeah, I mean, actually, just, just before I pick up on that, mm-hmm. something you said there that I, I, I think is interesting to follow up a bit is whether we should think about the feeling as the same but the judgment of its importance as being different, mm. or whether the actual feeling when you frame it as I'm working out at the gym versus when you frame it as I've just woken up in bed and I don't know what's going on. I think that the predictive processing story says that the feeling itself is different. It's not that mm. you've got the same feeling both times and context just allows you to behave differently in response. It's reaching further than that somehow. It's really changing the feeling. Well, I think, so I think yeah, it's important to bear that in yeah. mind. Yeah, I think. Well, I think yeah. both could be true here because it, it, I would certainly agree that subsequent feelings get layered onto it based on the in- interpretation. So every, it's obviously a moving target. But yeah. if you're, I mean, you're going to yeah. get a a cortisol dump, you know, based on the three in the morning experience of you know pressure and and yeah. elevated heart rate, wh- which you yeah. wouldn't get in the gym because you're not, you know, yeah. reacting to this thing in the sense. So yeah. it, it is definitely evolving. Yeah. yeah. No, you're right. And actually it's so important to always think about everything over time. And it is so tempting to sometimes mm-hmm. go back and just think about snapshots. But I really think if we're looking at cognition, we should always be thinking over time. So yeah, thanks for that. That's, uh, that is really important. You did ask also there about um, ways to intervene. Yeah. You know, what we, what could we do to leverage, um, this wiggle room that we've got in our favor. And I think that, you know, once we realize that the wiggle room is built around these edifices of prediction, then we can begin to see things to do. The, the thing that is a sort of break on that is that so much of that prediction machinery is unconscious and sort of we can't control it just by having a different thought. So, you know, mm. when I look at the hollow mask, for example, I might very well be able to think to myself, look, I really, really, really know that that's a hollow side that's facing me. It's just not going to do any good. You know, I can't reach down and, and alter those. But maybe I could with enough practice or looking at things in different lights. You know, it kind of depends. Things vary according to how a different illusion is being, uh, being generated. But in the case of things that we might do in our daily life, the obvious cases are, are things like reframing an experience that might otherwise be negative and that that negativity would set off bad cycles. So, you know, if I'm, a, if I'm about to do a talk, I sometimes feel a little tingle in my fingers. I guess that's adrenaline or, you know, something like that. 
reframing that tingle not as anxiety but as chemical readiness to deliver a good performance is actually a trick that I think works. It, it really does seem to do something. Likewise, reframing pain that we talked about earlier, all of those self-affirmation practices that we read about, you know, they actually have there's some pretty good evidence that they can make a difference in some cases. So there's some good studies showing that self-affirmation about abilities to do spatial reasoning tasks and math tasks can abolish gender differences in UK school kids in that case. And there was a similar set of results with race differences in US school kids. So, you know, these are, nothing is a panacea and nothing works for everything. You've got to have the basic skill set, otherwise you can't unleash it. <laughs> but, mm. um, but if you do have the basic skill set, you can either get in your own way or get out of your own way. And framing and self-affirmation really seems to help with getting out of our own way. What about hypnosis? Yeah, that's another wonderful way of getting out of our own way. Actually, another of my colleagues, Zoltan, the wonderfully named Zoltan Deans, <laughs> works on hypnosis and cognitive science. And, um, and yeah, I think you know, hypnosis is, is a powerful and actually underexploited tool at the moment. It's also a, a nice way of you know, susceptibility to, to hypnosis is an interesting sort of um, gauge, as Zoltan says, of what he calls phenomenological control. So the amount of control that you can exert over the shape of your own experience by these different techniques probably varies according to how hypnotizable you are. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I guess the differences in hypnotizability is a, a measure of the plasticity of one's models, right, or their susceptibility to you know, conceptual yeah. uh, influence. Right. I mean, how, how would you, on, on the basis yeah, of, of yeah. this thesis, how would you describe, because, you know, famously, there's, there's a very wide range in susceptibility to hypnosis. There's the Stanford scale, which I think goes from one to nine or zero to nine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, some people just are not hypnotizable and some people are, are highly so. Yeah. Uh, how would you describe that difference in light of the model? Yeah. I think it has to be related deeply to the amount of sort of voluntary control you can exert over your own precision weightings, just to dip into the, mm -hmm. into the jargon there. But that's uh, the amount of control that you can exert over the weighting of top-down predictions over sensory information. If you can exert a lot of control over that, then as long as you want to be hypnotized, you should be able to be hypnotized successfully. And of course, if you have that sort of control and you really don't want to be hypnotized, you won't be able to be hypnotized. It's a sort of, um, as Zoltan puts it, it's a sort of voluntary, the voluntary giving up of voluntary control mm -hmm. or, or something like that. So I think control over precision weighting is actually, it's a really, really important skill that we humans should try and develop. I think that meditation is another way of trying to develop that skill. It's, you know, if, if you ask me what I think meditation is doing for people, I think it is enabling greater control over the precision weighting apparatus. And the more control we have over that, the more control we have over our own experience. Mm. Do you have much experience with meditation? <laughs> well, funny enough, I, I, I only have a little because I, I don't seem to get on with it. And I'm really disappointed mm. about this. You know, I've been to a few sort of week-long courses and, uh, and I've done my best to sort of, you know, 
kind of sit quietly and do the right things for 20 minutes a day for a while. Are, are these are week-long Vipassana courses, like uh, mindfulness? Yes, exactly. It's sort of live-in kind of, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's a pretty, uh, obviously, I probably should give it, particularly given my theoretical views, should give it a better shot. Mm. But because every time I've tried, I just seem to be maybe just a little bit too too manic and hyper, i.e. the very kind of person that would benefit most, <laughs> but, mm. but finds it hardest to get into have you ever at tried the same time yeah go ahead have you ever tried meditating while on mdma or any other compound of interest no no i've never tried that that might be you think that would be worth a go yeah be yeah, yeah if um if mdma is still on the menu i, I would highly recommend mm-hmm. oh. trying uh, some mindfulness i have never tried that but yeah. i have had that experience of you know just sort of sitting and finding myself very very happy looking at a, a very small thing in mm-hmm. front of me which is you know it's got that a little bit of that sort of yeah. uh, almost unwitting mindfulness <laughs> about it i i think the closest i get in my current daily life is when i go on very long walks mm-hmm. and there's a certain point in in a long walk where you can i think start to enter a state that has some of some of the right properties so again just in an effort uh, however quixotic to make this intuitive for people when you say that you think meditation is a matter of of altering the precision weighting of one's models. What, can you? I think it's I think it's more about gaining control over the precision weighting. So you know, altering is what you do with it once you gain control over it. Mm. But it, it's it's learning how to control the precision weighting better, so that, for example, you can allow the sensory information to kind of try to speak for itself a bit more without being sort of sucked into starting you off thinking about stuff that is coming from the higher, more abstract levels, like, I don't know, what am I going to do later today? What should I be working on now? That sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, I think it's gaining, gaining some control over, over the amount of, over the way that precision is distributed across the machine. This is, it's a very difficult thing because most of the precision weighting stuff is happening automatically and beneath the hood all the time. So I think that's why we need these sort of long-term practices to, to somehow, somehow install a bit more control than we would otherwise have. Well, well let me describe my experience of mindfulness and, and you can tell me how it fits mm-hmm. in. If you can do this, yeah. that would be interesting. And there, there are kind of a few stages to this, but let's take anxiety as a kind of classically negative emotion that people find that mindfulness can be very helpful with. So, you know, there's something has precipitated anxiety, let's say a, a thought about, uh, you know, some future event like a, a public talk, and you, you feel this anxiety and it, and it feels intrinsically unpleasant, and the default reaction is to not want to feel that way to be thinking about the thing that's making you anxious, to be thinking about the, the reasons why you, you don't like this, why, why am I this sort of person who gets anxious, why can't I just be happy to be giving this talk? And you're, you're thinking, the th- thoughts are kindling the anxiety, the anxiety is being felt and, and kindling further thoughts in that vein. And the, the way mindfulness breaks this spell is that you remember that it's possible just to feel the anxiety, just feel the mere physiology of the, the butterflies in your chest, and to feel it non-judgmentally and non-reactively. You can even feel the intrinsic unpleasantness of it, if that's salient, but, even, but feel that without reaction. And you can notice that 
consciousness is just this open space in which everything, thoughts and sensations and changes in physiology are just appearing all by themselves. So you just rest as that open and non-judgmental and non-reactive awareness of all of these changes. And and the moment you shift to that openness uh, and just mere awareness, they lose their psychological implications. So, So anxiety in some sense is no longer anxiety. It's just this changing energy state of the body that doesn't have meaning. I mean, in this, in this moment, it no longer has me, it has no more meaning than a feeling of indigestion or, you know, an itching on your skin. I mean, it doesn't get read back into a psychological story of the kind of person you are. It's just yeah. fluttering and, and actually benign changes in the, the state of energy of the body. So yeah. given that transition, how might you explain what's happening there in terms of precision weighting and and yeah. predictive models, et cetera? Yeah, that's a that's a, that's a lovely description. I think you must be a really really good uh, meditation teacher. <laughs> I, I like the sound of that. So I think the thing to think there is that the precision is a zero sum game. So you know if you really up the precision on one place, then you have to down the precision elsewhere. Hmm. And so if you now imagine really up in the precision on the, the, the feeling, the sort of the sheer phenomenology of the feeling, then you sort of use up the precision weight in allowance, if you like, so that there's not much left to go to the things that are normally recruited by that feeling, which would be these predictions about your own future, worries about your future, worries about the past, thoughts about other things. So I think that's why that's how on these sorts of stories loading up one particular thing with precision whether it's you know whether it's a i don't know the breath or the the particular sort of phenomenology of that feeling or something external for that matter i guess should all be beneficial in that way uh, in the case of a, a feeling that normally recruits all kinds of negative things and i think you're right that focusing on the feeling itself sort of defangs it in some way because you realize you can have this feeling without it dragging all these other things along with it. Mm. And, and, and that's, a, that's fairly liberating, that sort of a, that kind of letting go, you know, let it, let it be, and, um, and then it's not as bad as it seemed to be before when it was recruiting all this other stuff. So I do think there's a, you know, I think it fits, the, it fits with the picture pretty well. Of course, you know, I want, to, I, I want to be honest here. It's very easy to tell kind of just so stories using the um using the apparatus of neural prediction and so mm. on um because you know there's there's just about nothing that you could describe to me where there wouldn't be there wouldn't be some way of accommodating it in a predictive processing framework by assuming that for example your priors your you know the the predictions that you were making were let's say very weird if your predictions are weird enough then then anything can happen so there's always a way to tell a, to tell a story. Mm. But what attracts me about the framework is that it spans all of the classic levels in a very powerful way. So if you remember Ma, David Ma's sort of classic picture of there is the, there's the computation, the general thing that's being done, there's a way it's being done, uh, and there's a way that that thing is being realized by the brain, then these stories actually hit all of those buttons very well, and they also very well accommodate the phenomenology. 
And it's that sort of now spanning of all of these levels from the kind of chemical to the phenomenological with the computational right there in between and proposals about how the brain implements it all. That's what I find most attractive. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's pivot to the extended mind and the embodied uh-huh. cognition yeah. hypothesis. Yeah. Because you know, it is natural to think about the mind simply being a matter of what the brain is doing and to, to think of our current circumstance as already highly analogous to our being a brain in a vat. I mean, the, the vat is, the, yeah. is our skull here. And, in, and it's, to a first approximation, this is true, although it leaves on your account a lot out. But I, I, I would imagine that everything you're about to say about <laughs> embodied cognition notwithstanding, if you imagine a brain transplant, you would expect to go with the brain and not stay with the body, right? If you if you <laughs> yeah. were if you had your brain transplanted into a, another body, isn't that wouldn't that still be the case? Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I'm yeah. with you there. That would be that would be a body transplant, not right. a uh, not a brain okay. transplant. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Okay, so yeah, so, what, so what's wrong with thinking yeah. about the brain yeah. doing all the mental stuff in isolation from the rest of the body and the world yeah. at this point? Well, you know, the brain is clearly a pretty important part of the overall picture. You started with the brain in a vat thought experiment there. So let me just go a little bit back to that, because mm. I actually think we could be brains in vats. You know, I don't, it, there's nothing in the extended mind story or in embodied cognition, I, th- I think, that actually rules that out. Mm-hmm. It's just that in order for us to be the thinking systems that we are, the vat would have to be providing something equivalent to a body, possibilities for action, possibilities for offloading, mental work onto the environment that right. you can alter. As long as, a, as long as you can do all that in the vat, then I think the vat is just a kind of different physics for the same old reality that we inhabit already. So it's what, it's what you can do with perception action loops that I think really matters most here. Those, I think, are super essential to cognition. What brains are, are the mediators of perception action loops. And as long as you can do that, then the extended mind is right there on the table because the way that predictive brains sort of operate as a platform for extended minds is that they're very good at predicting what the information gain would be from launching a particular perception action routine. And of course, they're um, very attracted to improving their own state of information either by retrieving stuff from memory or by launching an action that retrieves it from the world. They're both, they're both, both of those operations are estimated and performed in the same way. And so that, to me, that's a very interesting sort of, there's a kind of location neutrality about what the brain's doing. It doesn't really care whether it's lodged some useful bit of information away in itself or whether it's out there in the sort of uh, in your iPhone or in your always carried notebook, as long as it's um, robustly available as and when needed and trusted when retrieved, then basically you can dovetail, you can count that as a dovetailed cognitive system. So yes, I, I, I kind of forgotten where we started yeah, from so, there. But, well, yeah. Perhaps you can just you can yeah. describe a little further what you mean by a, yeah. a uh, perception action loop and what counts as extended mind in this case. I mean, we, yeah. we are, you know, on your account, some version of yeah. cyborgs already. And I, I can imagine this is only going to get it more interesting as we yeah. further u- utilize AI. What are you actually talking about with respect to 
using the world yeah. as a kind of a further substrate for our mental life. Yeah, I mean there are there are there are various examples here, each of which has a sort of different different balance of pros and cons. So you know the original example that Dave Chalmers and I used in the the Extended Mind paper way back in 1998, I think it was, uh, was of somebody with a kind of mild mild dementia who always carries a notebook around with some important information in it. If you ask them if they want to go somewhere in town, they will always look in the notebook if biological memory hasn't given them the answer already. So that becomes a kind of automatic routine. Notebook's always there. There's an auto call to bio memory. And then if that fails, there's an auto call to pulling out the notebook and having a look. So the idea was, if you get information about the address of something, it was, I think, the Museum of Modern Art in the original paper, then it gets to play, roughly speaking, the same sort of functional role as retrieval from bio memory would play. Close enough, at least, for it to be worth thinking about the system of the person plus the notebook as, a, as an actual cognitive system in its own right. Mm. And I think this sort of, you know, over the years, I've come to, to think something that I don't think David Chalmers does think about this. Um, so I think we, 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 we may differ on this. If you ask David Chalmers, what's the ultimate reason for believing in the extended mind? He'll say it's metaphysically right. It gets the metaphysics right. I think it's ethically right. So for me, the decision is a sort of a very balanced point at which you could say, yeah, but, you know, all the interesting work's being done by the brain, and the brain just knows to launch an action that retrieves some information from, from the iPhone or from the notepad. And that's a perspective that you can take. But I think that we risk over-shrinking ourselves if we do that. We shrink ourselves to the biological bit of our endowment when there are lots of people out there that are relying very heavily on different kinds of, different kinds of technology to partially offset cognitive deficits. And I think it would be wrong to think of them as, if you like, highly compromised agents who have to lean on the world rather than as extended agents mm. who happen to have parts of the world as parts of them, a bit like the way that we can think about prosthetically enabled athletes. You know, you don't normally go around thinking, oh, you know, if you want to, the, the real capabilities of the athlete are without any of the prosthetic aids. That's just, I think, doing, doing human beings a disservice. And I think we would be doing the same to ourselves cognitively if we uh, didn't take the extended mind perspective. If you take it in those cases, of course, you have to take it for everyone because, you know, I lean on my tools and technologies as much as anybody else, maybe more so. So I definitely would count as extended in that way. So, so what, I think the, what, so what yeah, do you think ahead. the daylight is between you and Chalmers yeah. on this point? Are you saying you don't think it gets the metaphysics right or it additionally gets the ethics uh -huh. right? I think I don't really understand metaphysics. Therefore, um, I have to stick with ethics. Hmm. Maybe it's something like that, you know, because. The, the metaphysics questions seem to be sort of about what, what, what needs to be true in all the possible worlds. And since I'm not very good at, uh, at working out which possible worlds I should be thinking about, I don't quite know how to cash the metaphysics check. If that's just another way of saying, I just think it's right, then, then that's fine. You know, then I'm, then, then I'm with Dave on that. But, uh, but it seems to me it's a tie somehow between the people that are already so convinced that the brain is the locus of cognition that they will re-describe everything that happens by 
painting the sort of color in the, the brain area in as cognitive and the other stuff is not, mm. versus people that are much more open to the difference, like me, then I think as a tie break, the ethical considerations can be, can be quite useful. Well, I think I mean, the way I would get at it intuitively, and, and I'm, I'm not as familiar with what you and Chalmers have done on this topic as I should be, but I, you know, sure. the resistance to the extended mind thesis seems to privilege the boundary of the skin in some kind of yeah. dogmatic way. And, and this, is, this is where I, I was hearing the relevance of, of metaphysics here. I mean, the idea that yeah. there's something magically significant about the, the line between yeah. endogenous and exogenous yeah. uh, information yeah, processing or memory, yeah. that seems fishy to me. And you, you can get that. Like, if you were to ask me, what is today's date? You know, I, I tend to live my life in, uh, in kind of blissful uh, distance from, you know, <laughs> having to, to know on any yeah. given day what the day's date is. Uh, and so I would often have to consult my calendar to be sure. So the, the cognitive experience I'm having in trying to retrieve the date, so I, I, there's some operation I can do internally to get it. Yeah. For instance, I happen to remember that I have a an event on a certain date, and I know what day of the week that is, and now I can figure out uh, that today is um, the 5th, but I could also just consult my digital calendar, and it would tell me that. Mm -hmm. So the difference is in the act of retrieval. So like there's, there's an initial experience of uncertainty, yeah. and then there's the mode of retrieval that relieves the uncertainty. And yeah. to think that the extended mind is categorically different than the mind yeah. is to think that there's a, a categorical difference in figuring out how to do the the retrieval dance entirely within the wetware of my brain to, or doing it by recourse to some yeah. motor behavior plan that puts me in touch with the world I don't I you know I, I don't yeah. I don't see that as a categorical difference that we, we necessarily have to take seriously that's where I come in on yeah. the metaphysics I think that's a good way of coming at the metaphysics, and I can get on board with that. It reminds me of, uh, it was Susan Hurley uh, who used to talk about there's no magical membrane, um, it's, uh, this, you know, skin, skin is not that important, or at least it's not obviously a cognitive barrier. It's, you know, it's obviously a, a barrier for certain metabolic purposes. At the same time, even, you know, the, the sort of metabolism cognition interface is, uh, or, or relation is much more complex than we thought as well. So, hmm. so yeah, that's, um, I think that's a, that's a good way to think about it. In terms of what the, what the brain is doing there, it is just estimating the sort of information that would be gained relative to what you're trying to do by doing either of the things that it can do, which is, you know, look up at the computer screen or try and perform a few internal operations to infer what the date has to be in the, the case that you described. And in that case, since it's always attracted to the simplest uh, and most efficient and most reliable solution, I think that we will very often just look up at the, the screen, mm. uh, which then counts, you know, it just counts as part of the, it counts as well as stuff that is stored but not being consciously rehearsed right now counts. So in terms of knowing today's date, it's kind of important that I don't go around consciously rehearsing it all the time. That would be very tedious, you know? And yet I count as knowing the date even before I've retrieved it into consciousness. And that's the, that's the sort of locus classicus, if you like, of the extended mind argument. It's, I think, 
It's what you get if you take unconscious mental processing seriously. Then you can't keep the unconscious locked in the head. There are these curious cases of our ability to internalize what was originally a, an entirely external tool. Um, I'm sure there are many examples of this, but the one I recall is you know, people who know how to use an abacus well apparently can, once they've used it out in the world a bunch, they can, they can use it by merely imagining an abacus and perform calculations that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. So, yeah, I think the, the, this boundary is spurious, and it, it's growing increasingly yeah. so given how much of our time and attention is spent in digital space yeah. playing with digital tools, safeguarding our digital reputations, and, and et cetera. How do you view the internet and information technology? And, mm. and then I think we should finish on yeah. AI as uh, a, a topic here. Sounds like, that sounds like a, good, a good plan of action. I mean, I, the Abacus case is very interesting, actually, because um, you're, you're right that there are some people, apparently, that can internalize that one. But if you take another case, like a slide rule, an old-fashioned slide mm. rule, I mean, half the listeners will not know what that is, but you cannot internalize a slide rule. You know, it's just that all those slidey bits with their fine-grained markings mm -hmm. do not get in your head and move around in, you know, you can't move them around in imagination in the right way. So, so there's some interesting differences, I think, between what we can internalize mm -hmm. and what we can't. But either of them are perfectly good fodder for creating extended mind networks as are um, the new wave of AIs, a little segue there. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, you know, I do think that these new AIs, the, the generative AIs, are wonderful tools. They're just amazing tools. I don't think for a moment that they've got the right structure to become conscious or even truly intelligent creatures because they lack the grounding in perception action loops that I think is really important to get in meaning into the system. At the same time, though, they're, you know, the same is true of the slide rule. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really, really good thing to have as part of your extended mind, as is a, a smartphone. And I think that what we'll see with the, the new AIs, well, they're not that new, but they're, they're kind of, um, their public up, uptake is, is very new, um, and their availability for, to everyone is, is, is kind of brand new. I think what we're going to see are nested ecosystems of artificial intelligence and human intelligence, if you like. So I'll, maybe there'll be some generative AIs that are so constantly in touch with me and what I'm doing, and they learn from me and what I'm doing, and they make a difference to me and what I'm doing, that they get woven into the system that should be counted as me. So that if you went in and got rid of those, you'd be doing me a, a cognitive damage. And then there'll be sort of penumbras of things that are kind of a little bit less, less tied in than that, but they're still pretty intimate. And then some things right on the outside that sort of are, are maybe shared with everybody and are not available all the time when I want them. They fail some of the conditions for being part of the extended mind, but they're definitely part of an extended ecosystem of intelligence. And so I think it's maybe... It could be that nested ecosystems provides a really good way of thinking about what go, what's going on, even in the extended mind cases, which are just at one sort of dramatic end of what's a much more, a much more sort of complicated and probably interesting range of possibilities. So, so I'm really excited mm. about the new AIs, to be honest. I mean, I, I signed one of those things that says, hey, watch out, this could be an existential mm -hmm. risk. And I, 
I do think it could be. At the same time, they're so useful in what they do, so powerful in what they do, that they're probably part of the antidote to other existential risks. So it's, you know, swings and roundabouts here, yeah. I think. You mentioned consciousness in passing. Do, do you share David Chalmers' view of the, the hard problem of consciousness? No, we depart very, very radically from each mm. other on that one. So basically, I'm what they call an illusionist, really, which is to say that although I, I don't deny that we have experience, I mean, good heavens, I just wrote a book called The Experience Machine. I don't think, I don't think it is sort of intrinsic and ineffable in that way that gets to float free of behavioral profiles. So, you know, really important to, to David Chalmers' arguments there mm. is the idea that no matter how much you specify the behavioral profiles, even under non-actual circumstances, none of that makes it necessarily the case that the conscious experiences will go the way they go. And I just don't buy that. So I'm on that other side that thinks that, you know, the full-on philosophical zombie is not a zombie at all. You know, that's just someone that has experiences. And um, if you met them, you would have to concede that and you'd be right. What do you mean by yeah. be- behavioral profile? So like, how, how was, would your thesis yeah. account for someone with full locked-in syndrome who's fully conscious, but there is no overt behavior of the normal sort? Yeah. Yes. I mean, I, 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 I did say something like, or I meant to say if I didn't, actual and counterfactual behavior. So it's not just the behavior that someone shows, but the behavior that they could show under other circumstances. So clearly, uh, we can be prevented from displaying certain things in our behavior, and it doesn't mean that they're not part of our conscious mental life. But if these are things that are making a difference to our experience, and there's no way that in any circumstance they could possibly be manifest, then I think they're not making a difference to our conscious mental life. What about dreams? Like, take dreams without any, you know, sleep disorder component to it. So you're, you know, you're properly paralyzed and you're, you know, you, you and I are both asleep and dreaming and not moving and having very different dreams that have no behavioral implication. How are you, how are you yes, smuggling maybe. in a counterfactual behavioral, yeah. behavioral implication? It is possible, yeah. Okay. So the right thing to say about that case, it is a very good challenge, is that I shouldn't just say behavior and counterfactual behavior. It's if there's no way of detecting this difference at all. So now take the dream case, make it as dramatic as you like. There'll be some future of brain decoding technology where you'll be able to see what's going on in the brain well enough to know not just that they're dreaming, but that there's a certain kind of content rather than another kind of content. So at that point, you have good evidence, a kind of evidence actually that people already use sometimes in, um, you know, in some of the locked-in syndrome cases. So it's more like experience makes a difference. That's probably the right way to say it. If it's going on, it's making a difference and differences are in principle detectable. Whereas Mm. On the Chalmers' view, there are differences here that are not in principle detectable. They don't have to be. It's, uh, there could be a difference where there is no possible detection mechanism, no difference in actual or counterfactual behavior, and yet somehow experience got to float free. That just seems mm. 
that just seems wrong to me. I wonder. So it's, I, I feel like it's I, materiality. I, I feel like we should bring David in for, to this conversation because we should, shouldn't we? Yeah. On, on my reading of him, I, mean, I happen to share yeah. his his priors on this. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, largely informed by his work yeah. going back now thirty years uh, and having thought about it in the interim. I don't think it's so much that it requires undetectability. It's just that the what is detectable there is not explanatory in the way that we have come to expect elsewhere in science. And that, that, that's what makes the problem hard as opposed to easy. So is it, is it, even if you gave us the true neural correlate of consciousness, and therefore the, or, or let's say you know, the, the true reporter of the difference between my dream and your dream based on you know, a perfect neuroimaging experiment, mm-hmm. it, it would seem like just a brute fact that does not actually reach into the higher level phenomenon and explain its emergence. And, to ex- and, and, and it doesn't explain, yeah. it should be like something to be associated with that pattern as opposed to some other pattern. Yeah. Even if stipulating it is like yeah. something to be associated with both patterns, we could then explain the differences between them on the basis of the differences in the patterns. Like it might, like if you're, if you're dreaming of playing tennis and I'm dreaming of, you know, f- sailing uh, in high seas, we might, on the basis of those patterns and analogous patterns when we're awake and, and doing those analogous things in real life, mm-hmm. we might be able to make all those discriminations sort of make sense uh, or make, an, make perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And yet there's still this underlying fact that there's other blood flow changes being detected in the brain in the same neuroimaging experiment. And apparently there's nothing that it's like to be associated with those changes. So that you know, then, then the hard problem seems to return in all its force. Yeah. Well, of course, I, you know, I do not, I don't agree that it's going to be sort of, that the cake should be divided up quite that way. Mm. What can we get to here? We, so from the brain facts and the sort of, let's make it a bit better than that, the sort of embodied brain facts, you'd be able to say something about, in fact, everything about how that person would group things together, how they would sort of, um, everything that they would say as well. And so, you know, you would be able to say, if I were to wake them at this point in the dream, then they would say this, if they could speak at all. If I was to ask them to compare uh, the color of this bit of their visual field with the color of this other bit and say whether it looks the same to them or it looks different, you'd be able to predict what they'd say about that as well. And I just don't see any light between all of that and the nature of the experience. It seems to me that all of that fixes the nature of the experience, whereas for David, it can't fix it, because if it fixed it in the right sort of way, then it would make the experience a kind of necessary upshot of the, the physical stuff that you were uh, looking at when you worked all that out about how they would group things, what they would say, etc. cetera. Uh, and that, I think that's where the difference lies. So the stuff that you and David think wouldn't constitute enough of an explanation because it's not quite got there from the sort of material facts, if you like, to the experiential facts, I think it did get there because I think that's, that's what experience is. It's our it's our tendencies to group, classify, sort, and say. And, uh, you know, once, mm. you've, uh, once, you've, once you've got all that accounted for, 
I want to resist the idea that there's uh, that there's something left, and not only that, that the something that's left is actually the thing that we cared about, <laughs> and, and all the rest is just is just material goings on. So as yeah. these AI systems continue yeah. to improve, and they pass the Turing test in every conceivable way, I mean they're they're passing it. Mm-hmm. Strangely, now they're yeah. they're passing it so well that they're failing it because it's obvious that no human could be providing these answers this quickly uh, and this accurately. Uh, so they're, you know, they're superhuman in, in, in certain respects already, but they're, they obviously fail in some very basic ways yeah. now. So yeah. once their failures become less and less detectable and they're integrated in, in the world in ways that, that you think are, is necessary for the emergence yeah. of consciousness, mm-hmm. At a certain point, I'm imagining on your on your yeah. thesis, you will just suddenly begin to assume that they're conscious, based on these performances. Um, yes, <laughs> the, the very quick answer to that one is yes. That you know, since I believe that if you get the performances in the right shape, then that's as it were. That's, that's that, all that it, all that consciousness could that's be. What it, yeah. That's what it is. Then then yes, that's. Uh, that's exactly going to be going to be enough. And indeed, you know what I what I hope for from either predictive processing or whatever successor successor theory um, takes over after that is that we'll end up with something like a periodic table of experiential variation. So we can see how all of the little sort of different tweaks that you might make to the material machinery in the context of embodied action that's evolving over time, as you rightly stressed earlier. We'll, we'll see how changes to the fundamental bits, precisions, um, predictions, prediction errors, will make systematic differences to experience and accommodate altered experiences, and we'll be able to intervene better on the system to remedy bad experiences and to change the shape of our experiences. I think if we had that, and we lived with that model for, you know, 10 years maybe, gaining more and more control over the realm of experience that way, uh, we would cease to think that there was a hard problem left. I think at that point we would just think, oh, that was it. We solved it. Well, so this is going to be interesting because this is going to happen, I think, fairly soon. You know, soon, certainly in the very likely experience of both of us. Uh, So you, you and I both currently see no reason to believe that these systems are conscious, even though they're linguistic products are getting more and more interesting. At a certain point in the very near term, even now, you can get them to claim to be conscious or you seem to make that yeah. claim. So they're going to they're gonna be claiming to be conscious all the while in, in various ways, but we don't believe them yet. Now, what I'm expecting for myself is to, because I don't think we know how consciousness emerges, and I don't, I don't think we, we, in the human brain or in any other system, I don't think we'll know when and how or if it's emerging in these AIs. Mm-hmm. Yet at a certain point, I agree that they're going to seem conscious and they'll mm-hmm. profess to be. And uh, what I, my concern is that we'll just lose sight of this as an interesting problem. We'll just think, okay, we're helplessly led to relate to these, these systems as though they were conscious, mm-hmm. but we won't know. Uh, whereas you won't have that problem, you'll just you know, the moment you're helplessly relating to them as though they're conscious, <laughs> you'll just assert that they must be conscious because that's what consciousness is. That the successful 
emulation of consciousness. There's no, there's no difference between successfully emulating consciousness and being conscious. Yes. I mean, I, I realize that I'm, I'm probably, um, I don't know if you can embrace a poison chalice, mm. but anyway, I might be embracing <laughs> a poison chalice here. But that, that, that is pretty much what I think, except that I don't think that any system that is built to the current kind of specifications will actually pass a sort of glass ceiling. So I don't think they're going to exhibit these behaviors. But of course, if they did, I would have to conclude that they're conscious. The reason I don't think they're going to exhibit them is that they don't close perception action loops. They can't experiment on the world in order to test their own ideas, not the way they're currently structured, at least. And that is so different but to couldn't they experiment what biological in, intelligence does. Yeah. Is it important that the experiment go on in the world? Couldn't it just be a simulated world? Simulated experiments will be fine. They can't even launch a simulated one at the moment. Right. But eventually, so at the moment, it's much more as if, as if someone had access to every experiment that psychology and cognitive science ever did, but they couldn't run one of their own. You know, that would be a strange place to be. You wouldn't be able to sort of test your ideas. And I think that we constantly test our ideas about space and time and shape and color by intervening on the world and seeing what happens. And that I think is what anchors the meanings of our mental states, if you like, to the world that they're about. So without that anchoring, I think it will always look a lot more like a kind of a, an ungrounded um, hallucination that is sometimes prone to go wildly off the rails. And as long as that keeps happening, then they won't be exhibiting the kind of behaviors that I would have to otherwise concede were sufficient mm. for me thinking of them as conscious. So there's a slight difference in, 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 in the way that we predict the near future is going to pan out. But I do have to, I do have to bite the bullet on your, on your suggestion that if they exhibit all the right behaviors, including intervening in the world in the right ways to test mm -hmm. their own ideas, then, then yeah, yeah, nothing's stopping them. But doesn't it, well, so I, I think even on your account, it would be conceivable that you're wrong in attributing consciousness to one of these systems, right? So like, what if we all agreed uh -huh. that they're conscious? Well, we, we all take the Andy Clark view of consciousness. Yeah. Consciousness is as consciousness does on some level. Yeah. And we all get convinced that our chat GPT-17 yeah. is conscious. Isn't it conceivable that there's some place to stand where we are in fact wrong about that? I think, I think there is some, I think there, there is somewhere to stand where we could be wrong about it. But that would become apparent from more behavior, if you like. So I don't think there's anywhere to stand to make the claim that if you get all the behavior and all the counterfactual behavior right, then that consciousness is, is lacking. That's the place where I want to dig my heels in and say, no, at that point, all you could possibly have is a kind of uh, a sort of bio-chauvinistic kind of demand that nothing in the behavioral profile suggests is not being met. Therefore, you should, you should uh, welcome them to the community of conscious agents. Mm. So I do think that you know, we could be wrong. So you're right, we could, we could make the call, okay, they're exhibiting all the right behaviors. Turns out actually that we're wrong about that because there's some whole class of behaviors that we haven't probed. And as soon as you start to probe them, you see that if any of us, for example, produce those behaviors, we would say, you know, you're not conscious, you know, we got that wrong. So 
Yes, but not not in this sort of absolute absolute case where where all the behaviors and all the possible behaviors are right. Then I think that's just you know conscious experience. I think we came up with conscious experience as a name for our own and others' behavioral profiles, ones of a certain kind, grouping in particular and sorting and saying, you know, I'm putting the red things over there and I'm putting the blue things over there. And so... Okay, just one more uh, yeah, quick question yeah, on this topic, sure. and then I, I, I will yeah. let you go for that uh, beach walk. I know we, we do. We, I know we have fundamentally slightly yeah. different priors here, but yeah, yeah. Well, so assuming that mind is substrate independent, right? So some yeah. something like functionalism can be cashed out, so that we could have these conscious experiences in the wetware of our brains, but we could also have them in silico or in some other architecture that is yeah. different from our own. By reference to what could you say that they were the same experiences if in your brain scanning experiments, you know, in, in people and in these new systems, the only thing that unite these two patterns as being the same is the conscious subjective side of the story? Well, there's... Just, there's... To, just to button this up. So the, the, you're, you're having a vision of blue, you know, of the perfect blue mm-hmm. that you've never seen before. And we scan your brain and we get the neural correlates of that and we instantiate that, that perfect blue in some other system with a, okay. by a very different architecture. By reference to what are those two systems instantiating the same thing? They would perform the same way when you ask them to sort and group and say. So, you know, mm-hmm. sort those things and match that blue to another sample. Sort the things in front of you into the ones that, uh, that have that color of blue. Tell me, describe as best you can that, that color of blue and how you think it relates to other colors that you perceive. So there's plenty of behaviors there, even for a, even for a simple case like that. So, but all of those things ha- either don't happen or they happen in the future, right? They're either counterfactuals or they're future states yeah. of the system. Yep. So how can we ever say that it was the same, it's the same now without performing those further, giving voice to those confirmatory utterances or uh, further neuroimaging experiments like like isn't there a fact of the matter now no i don't think there is i think there's lots of there's lots of good cognitive science experiments showing that something that happens to you a few time clicks after something that you've just been processing can alter the way that you experience the thing that happened before so um, well that well that's true but like, yeah. if you and I have these secret experiences we're, we're of blue, we're always constructing into the past in some way. I think so. I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a problem with a sort of a, an always missing instantaneous moment of experience because mm. it, it was you that correctly um, pushed me earlier mm. on the thing that um, cognition and experience is always evolving over time. Let's never do a snapshot, and I, I think you're quite right about that. It's the evolution over time that counts, and that means that experiments that involve things like stopping the system and asking it to compare or report mm. uh, a, a fair game. But eventually an experience is, has elapsed, right? And now we're talking about the memory of the experience. True, yeah. And so it, it was what it was. Yeah. And for you and I, it just seems to me that there is a further fact of the matter. Yeah. It's like you and I could both be wrong in our subsequent utterances about Definitely, the yeah. blue we experienced. So we could, be, we could agree that it was the same blue, but it wasn't, yeah. or, or exactly, vice versa, yeah. right? So it seems no, I, completely, I completely agree with that. So, you know, it's, um, 
obviously, um, that's why you have to construct your, your experimental test carefully. All right. Well, we're not going to figure this out now, but I think we we got to bring <laughs> in uh, Dan Dennett and David Chalmers to perform some psychic surgery on both of us for this that conversation. That would be good. Yeah, yeah. yeah that would yeah. be that would be fun. Yeah. I, you know, I, I'm happy to have my priors on this altered. Um, it's just that they haven't altered yet. Well, Andy, it's a pleasure to finally connect with you, and uh, I recommend that people yeah. pick up your book, The Experience Machine. And um, until next time. Enjoy that walk on the beach. Fabulous. Thank you so much. It's been a, a real pleasure talking and, uh, and uh, really enjoyed the conversation about the hard problem too. Nice. Thank you. <laughs>